You'll never believe this. A pastor and a rabbi walk into a podcast to discuss how faith and tradition should inspire but not limit us. Yeah, we talk about stand-up comedy, surfing, religion, family issues, Doritos, hemorrhoids, the bears, and absolutely nothing at all. You'll have so much fun, you'll never believe we're actually religious leaders. All I want to do is a zoom, 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 and a boom, boom. Just shake your room. Oh, you are waiting. There you are. Hello. You didn't hear me singing Rump Shaker, did you? I'll tell you what, I was missing it, though. That's why I didn't admit you. Because every time I go to Zoom, I think of the line from Rump Shaker, where he says, all I want to do is a zoom, 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 and a boom, boom. I'm like, what is a zoom, 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 and a boom, boom? And if I if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. I can't, I can't join. You know, Urban Dictionary has nothing on it either. Was that true? I don't know. I didn't actually Google this thing. Oh, I would be sad though. I think the Urban Dictionary would be all over that. Eighty percent of what I say is preposterous <laughs> in the realm of ridiculous. Well, yeah. You know, why do you think friends, man? <laughs> Very true. Zoom does not appreciate the rump shaker pun. No, they really did not like that at all. I wonder, if, I wonder if they attempted to get the uh, licensing from uh, Rex and FX. <laughs> and they I'll said, anybody honest, who... I'm going to make a... Um, I'm going to make an uh, announcement here. Okay. You heard Ready. it here first, folks. Rump shaker was probably one of the top five most... Uh, recorded songs on my tape deck uh, when 95.5 WBRU in Rhode Island would play it in the top five at nine. So I'd listen at nine o'clock PM and wait until Rex FX came on and I'd hit record as quickly as possible on my tape deck. And so the first second or two of the song, I have no idea ever. It never I, said I all I want to do. It just went zoom, zoom. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how the song started because I would, that's how you recorded songs back then. And, Oh and a Rump God. Shaker was up there in one of the top five uh, most recorded songs on my tape deck. But hey, let's get right into it today. Today we're talking about how uh, best practices and healthy ways to disagree with one another. And so, Jamie, I wanted to start by asking a question. Um, as I understand it, uh, Jews believe that Jesus existed and much of what's recorded in the Bible is factually true. If so, why do you not agree that he is the Messiah and savior of the world that Jewish people are waiting for? Oh, this is a good question. You asked a good question. Now, wait, when you said Bible, you mean old or new? Just want to be clear about this. <laughs> Don't shut food in your mouth after a question like that. I got I to gotta make sure I get all our terms and uh, conditions. There's only here. one Bible. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, so where there's also, wait a minute, you don't even believe that. You believe in the Old Testament. Don't go there. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, the Bible is both the old and new testament together. You it's can't just call bigger something old than yours. and new. Wait a minute, you can't tell something old and new and say it's all the same. You, I say ridiculous thing. That's ridiculous. No, it's just where the uh testaments were made. They're made in an old time or in a new time. And we believe that it's a new promise that was made, not a new book. Oh, see, I'm learning something every day. So why don't I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, yes. look, you, you could you could start right off with the with the the um, the movie Snatch is giving you a good reason, right? You could say that it that it was a mistranslation of the word Naar, right? Naar means young or Naara, excuse me, means young woman, and it didn't mean virgin. We're not going to go there. That's not where we're going to go. The reason that Jews believe or don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah is because we don't believe things that are supposed to happen in the Messianic age have happened yet. It just hasn't happened. Like what? Like peace on earth. So, um, so Jews so believe that when the Messiah comes, peace will be immediate? Or the other way around. It's either that peace on earth will occur, and then the Messiah will come, or the Messiah will come, and then there will be peace on earth. Okay. Okay. So we believe the Messiah is going to do all those things, but in a different way, um, where Jesus didn't do it for uh, once and for all, for all people, didn't make earth the way that God promised, but Jesus asked us to be a part of 
fulfilling the promises, like bringing about peace on earth. And so in a way, like if you think about it in a movie, a movie has five acts. The third act is the culmination of the conflict. Mm -hmm. Jesus was the third act. He was the, the solution to uh, the problem, the Messiah, the chosen one, the savior, right? And so the fifth act, the closure of, of our lives as a movie will be the reconciliation of all people, shalom, uh, peace on earth, all those messianic promises. But we live in the fourth act where we have to do the work of the hero and find ourselves a part of the story. Oh, so in now, a way, do you believe and accept Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior? <laughs> so help you, Boy Scouts. So help you, Boy Scouts. I'm just going to sneak that in there. So just uh, say yes at the dotted line, sign at the dotted line. Um, <laughs> I think so I got so him, guys. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> There's a party waiting right behind me There's to celebrate your baptism. <laughs> like the new years of uh, my baptism. Very nice. I appreciate that. Um, listen, I think that what's amazing about what you just said is that we agree on one, fun one fundamental piece. We all agree that we have to do the work to bring peace on earth. That's an agreed point, right? The disagreement is just, was he the son of God or not? Was he the Messiah, right? There's a lot of different things that Judaism, by the way, says. We also say that, uh, that Jesus, uh, Jesus, Messiah is supposed to come on a, uh, on a donkey, come riding in on the donkey. He's supposed to be the descendant of David's line, right? King David. There's all sorts of things. There's Both of those are true. Both of those are true? Yeah. Riding on a donkey, Palm Sunday. Rode on a donkey. Check. Uh, what was the second one? You said King David's line. There's a lineage directly uh, from David in Matthew listed. Do you want me to get it and read it? It's really boring. It's like a hundred random names. <laughs> so you're saying... You have something in Matthew that we get like almost every other Torah portion, like every other Shabbat, there's like a listing of about a hundred people. Oh, that's yep. fun. Yep. All white dudes. Do you have to read that out ever in church? Do you ever First of all, out? anyone listening, the white dudes thing was a joke. Uh, hopefully it wasn't offensive. They are all dudes because the Bible, uh, unfortunately, uh, was, was, was very sexist. Uh, and well, at least name as many to women, one but... side. It was at least leaning to one side, right? Like it's <laughs> sexist or not. It's like, well, we're really only looking at, uh, at one people in this moment. Yeah, go ahead. That was it. I just wanted to clarify. I didn't want to get okay, in trouble. Thank you. Thank you. Scathing no, 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 responses. You shouldn't, you shouldn't get in because... trouble. Listen, uh, this is a good debate to have. And you know what I like about it? It's that you and I can do it in a jestful, loving manner. Exactly the point. We agree Ding. to disagree and... Not throwing each That's other under the bus. That's why you'll never believe this. That's why this is called. You'll never believe this. So uh, it, tell him what he's won. So what we're really talking about is ha ha healthy disagreements. Uh, another activity I wanted to do um, is just a quick fire, almost like a um, improv game, if you will, where uh, we list off as uh, round robin, back and forth. You go, I go. Mm -hmm. Uh a unhealthy disagreement or a, a way to disagree in an unhealthy manner. Maybe we haven't done it, but we know what we would know. And we've heard of people um, who have disagreed in an unhealthy ways. Okay. So these are all the unhealthy ways that people have disagreed. Here we go. I'll go first. And then you go quick fire in three, two, one fist fights. Um, screaming at each other. Mm. Shaming the other party. Mm. Deciding the other person isn't your friend anymore. Ooh, yes. Specifically on social media. <laughs> um, even being on social media. No, that's not, that's not, wait, wait, hold on. I got to get a good, that wasn't the one. That wasn't the one. Um, quoting as many things as possible until the other person feels, it's kind of like shaming, but basically quoting, quoting the death. other person under the table. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, passive aggression. Mm, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, aggression, aggression. Using the other person's weakness, uh, calling it out against them. Oh, nice. How about calling out the other person's own flaws, right? Their weakness, not only in the argument, but also just their weakness as a person and saying, well, really, you the other day said this to me. Yeah. Really good way to um, any time of vulgar language or uh, hand gestures that may indicate something vulgar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ooh, these are good. I think we're, I think we got a good list. Yeah, that was good. And time. And time. So, uh, scene. So you you were the one who kind of brought this up. Why did you start thinking about how to how to um, disagree well? Okay. So I mean, clearly the thing that brought it into my mind was uh, the events of this past week, right? The whole everything that has happened 
uh, in America with the Capitol, storming of the Capitol, right? And, and what I've seen happen actually since then is what's been even maybe more troubling to me. Right? The, the Capitol was, was troubling, right? I, I think we should all condemn it. I think we should all say this was not a good thing. This was probably one of the saddest days in American history. We can all agree on that. But instead of saying we can all agree on those things, people have now started to do this lumping in thing where they'll say, and everybody who was at the protest and everybody who voted for Trump and everybody, it's just this huge polarization I see going on. And what's the problem with that? The problem with doing that is that you're alienating definitely half of the country, right? You're basically saying to half of the country, if you ever supported this person in any way, and they clearly made a mistake just now, I think we'll all agree that sort of inciting a group of people to storm the Capitol and try and stop uh, the, the uh, certification of electoral you know, votes is not a good thing to do. Yeah. In doing so, that, in saying everyone who ever supported this person or had anything to do with this person, even though they're, most of them are saying right now, that was wrong, you're, you're alienating and you're not, this is not productive. Not a productive yeah. step. Yeah, the, um, that's one of the four horsemen in uh, relationships is ultimates. So saying this, or, or you're all the same, or everyone in that category, or you never do this, or you always do it this way. That's a big marital breaker. Mm-hmm. But that's a great, yeah, that's a great example of, um, and it really, it really shuts down confl- um, conversation, at least. And sure. you're never, I, I, I just said, don't use ultimates. And I said, never. You will you will rarely win an argument or help convince someone of something that's 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 wrong or troubling by making them feel they're a part of something even worse or lumping them into a broader category. You know those kind of labels never really help. Um, I'll tell you one of the things that that sort of struck me in the last. I think it actually just was yesterday afternoon. This this struck me as one of those things, and we've talked about this once before of a statement which was so counterproductive. Um, and I'm gonna start with who it was and you're already gonna go, well, what did you expect? But Arnold Schwarzenegger came out with a statement yesterday. Did you, did you see this? This is great. Yep. yep. Yeah. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, for those who haven't heard yet, but I'm sure by now, when you hear this podcast, you will have Amy, we'll put it in the show notes. We don't have. But Arnold Schwarzenegger said that this uh, storming of the Capitol was America's what's called Kristallnacht. For those yeah. who don't know what Kristallnacht is, right? Kristallnacht was the night of broken glass. Night of broken glass was the moment, <clears throat> the definitive moment that started the uh, the events to lead to six million slash thirteen total million six million Jews, thirteen million people dying in the Holocaust. They rounded up all the Jews, broke all the windows of the Jewish businesses and said, this is it, Jews, it just became much worse at that point after. And he said, this is America's Kristallnacht. And first of all, I'm gonna do something I just said not to do, but it's an interesting statement coming from someone whose father was a Nazi. I'm just gonna put that out there. Just like putting it out there. You don't have to, you know, it's not to- He's not talking you. about me, not talking about me, everybody. <laughs> but, but the other thing that's really interesting, I think we've talked about this before, is I, there's this huge need that the world has right now to point out who's a Nazi. Or who's most like a Nazi? How's that, right? That, that, that everyone needs to know this person over there or that action that they did, this person is a Nazi. And guess what? What happened at the Capitol was horrible. We're all agreeing on that. But this was not Kristallnacht. No one people, no one uh, portion of the community was outright, you know, pointed a finger at it and said, we don't like you and you're out. They disagreed with what was going on. They did the wrong thing by storming the castle. Don't go storm the castle. That's what Billy Crystal always teaches. <laughs> Do you think it'll work? It'll take a miracle. <laughs> it'll take a miracle. For those of you who can't tell my amazing accents, that was Miracle Max from miracle the Max. future film Princess Bride. Ah, um, so what, okay, so what you pointed out was interesting because that's on my list of things for that 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 kind of help in, in having a healthy disagreement or disagreeing well okay. is speak from your own experience clearly don't make metaphors to someone else's experience. So I watched Schwarzenegger's video. I actually appreciated most of it. Do you, let me point out what he did and then ask you a question. Because what he did as a personal experience, he may have said, I was there. And in my experience, this is similar to that. And it, you know, and then give some background and context to how he felt similar and how it looked similar and how it brought him fear. Um, in that context, he's just talking about 
his experience of it all and he and how he fears it's going to be the same um if he had taken that portion out do you think the rest of that video would have been um helpful or was it a was it a good message listen i the the ultimate message of this was fearful this was tragic this was wrong all those things are there you don't have to bring in yeah. right, an experience that the jewish people suffered tremendously you know from and so, i mean it's a, it's akin in some ways to the same ways that i feel the people use the term rape okay when people use the term rape and it has nothing to do with it right and and i can i can give you multiple examples through my own work because i battle people about issues of circumcision online they use the term over and over and over again i said if you said that to someone who god forbid had ever had to live through something like that they would look at you and say really hmm. that's what you're you're going to equate those two things like First of all, you didn't live through that. You don't know what that experience was like. There's ways to express to other people how horrible something is without sort of taking a memory and taking an experience that the Jewish people are the arbiters of, right? And have to sort of protect in some way and say, say it in a way that totally drives the message home. But don't, don't, you don't have to use that experience to to equate this because they're so not equatable. They're not the same things. If this is your first time listening to the You'll Never Believe This podcast, just note, we don't always talk about things as heavy as rape, Nazis, and converting Jews within the first five minutes. <laughs> well, actually, not even the first 10 minutes, usually. But um, thank you all for joining us. We're still glad you're here. If you stayed, if you stayed. Um, but no, so, listen. I, so, here, I, I want to bring you back to the question. Was, if you were able to revisit that video... And remove the emotional baggage that comes from him relating the uh, whatever the German word is, or Austrian word is Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht. Uh, Chris, relating crystal meth to uh, <laughs> the, the, the storming of the Capitol. Now you you're really starting that. to get the stuff you know, right? right? <laughs> you can, I'm just trying to get in more controversial issues. Um, right. If you can, if you can emotionally remove. Uh, how that made you feel, would the rest of Schwarzenegger's video have been a helpful message that was similar to what you believe? Yes. And, and, why, and I do think it's a helpful message. I do think that it's the right thing that should have been said. And, but on top of that, that's what we need more of. When it comes to these sorts of moments, we need people to talk about what we agree upon, not things we don't agree upon. Yeah. And that's, right? why, I, that's why I think it's incredibly important for people to practice doing what we're talking about today. Like, Schwarzenegger, I thought it was a really well said video. Most of it was spot on. He had a few other um, ulti ultimates in there, things where he said all people and, and all things are like this. And I agree that relating it in that way. Um, but if he had simply taken the tip of either leaving that part out, you know, I think that's another good tip in, in disagreeing well, is if there's triggers, if you, you know, got you got to consider your message, if there's triggers in there for other people, that is a loaded language that you'll never be able to wordsmith, right? You bring up mm -hmm. the Holocaust or Nazis, there's no chance people will immediately flip a switch no matter what's happening. Comedians have faced this for decades where they'll make a joke about Hitler or Nazis, totally unrelated, completely ridiculous. And people will be offended and they would say, did you even listen to the joke? It was about a right. banana and Hitler because right. it's not. And, and, and so I think if, I think, first of all, speaking from his own experience could have been more helpful rather than saying this is the like, um, crystal like, knock. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, I'm trying to remove that loaded language in some way. I think it's, sure. a, it's a telling message. I, I'm sure it's startling uh, for some people. What I liked about him bringing it up, the reason I, I sort of, you know, if it were a different instance that didn't invoke those triggers, he did help us to see a more uh, long-term, uh, deeper understanding of, you know, this isn't the first time in the history of Earth that someone's uh, done this. And, and, and Americans see, are very myopic overall. They, they see everything as American history, as mm -hmm. one of, you know, and, and, and compared to Europe um, and Africa, we're still teenagers, you know, in, in, in the length of, you know, this democracy thing is still a, a uh, 
an experiment, really. We're still figuring it out. And as teens, it looks like we're raging right now with hormones. <laughs> and so I think we got to What would be... you know about hormones? <laughs> oh, <laughs> gosh, I still break experience. out. <laughs> and rump shakers still drives me crazy. Um, yeah, there you go. So, I, you know, I think, you know, he what he did do and, and is a helpful way uh, that he did help, you know, if people disagreed with his stance on it, he did help all people see this, this is, this isn't the first time this has happened, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And there, you know, there are other times and other places too, not just um, Kristallnacht where this, this happened. And I think it's important we see that and we see that, oh, Austria's, you know, got through this in some way and is still a healthy, thriving, um, respectful government, right? They, they, they aren't, in in total disarray they haven't become nazi germany uh and so i think that was that was something he said that was that was really good um in you response would, to that i would have yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. i was going to say i would have been much happier i don't know if you saw if you've ever been a, a jimmy jiminy glick fan yes Martin i Jim. love jiminy glick are you going to bring up so, the mel brooks thing yes so the best thing he ever said and he quote i saw him i listened to him just the other day on a podcast where he said this was my favorite line, right? His favorite line of his entire time doing Jimmy DeGlick was when he had Mel Brooks on and he goes, what's your beef with the Nazis? Which is like such a, <laughs> just what's a great your beef joke. with all the Nazis? <laughs> that was just, and, he, and Mel Brooks, I mean, if you can get Mel Brooks to fall out of his chair, which he did, you know, you did it right. So he nailed that one. But yeah, I, I, there's something to be said. What, what you're saying is absolutely spot on. Um, there needs to be a, a sort of recognition that this is, this has happened before. Um, this is something that we can get through. All, all those things are good messages, very important messages at this moment. Zooming uh, out a little beyond the, beyond the scenario yeah. itself and the nation, um, another, another you know, kind of you know, uh, portion where disagreement didn't go well is in response to this on social media. I'm a part of a pastor's, a Lutheran pastor's group. It's a closed group, so it's just rostered leaders uh, in the Luth- Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. So I can't join? I can't join? Sorry, I can screenshot whatever you want to see. I'm, nice. I'm, I'm down for that. But there's this one guy who didn't like the response of the national bishop, Elizabeth Eaton, her He didn't like, appreciate, he, and he agreed with what she was saying, but he thought she didn't go far enough. And so he agreed with what she said, but not how much she said it in what different forums. And so this pastor... Who's, who speaks often on this uh, Facebook site, went on to post at least three scathing respond, uh, scathing comments to what the bishop didn't do or how awful it was that she didn't do this. And all I can think of was, if you disagree with someone, the worst thing you can do is go to the crowd and mm-hmm. tell them and tell the crowd how much you disagree with someone. And I couldn't believe it because that's one of the things that I hate the most is when I find out that someone in my congregation is going and rumor mongering and gossiping about something I did or saying how much I hate and not saying to me, Hey, in I appreciate what you're doing. Could you do this? Or why did you do something the way you did? You know, there's this appreciative inquiry for leaders, especially that that's so much more helpful than slander, you know, slandering behind people's backs. And it's such a poor, it's not going to get you anywhere. You know, I, I, I've never heard of one example where someone's heard gossip or rumor and gone, you know what, that mob of angry people <laughs> knocking me down and tell me how awful I is. They're right. I should change how awful I am. You know, it's more so someone who says, Hey, can we chat? I have um, a very good friend and, and um, member here who didn't like something I said in a sermon, and it was the way I said it more than uh, what I said. And so Sunday after, she said, hey, this is bugging me all day. Can I come in this week and chat about it? I said, I'd love to. Let's set up an hour. So she came in, and for a whole hour, uh, she said she disagreed, and she didn't. This is something I said wrong, and I talked to her about why I said it and how I could, you know, and I said, I see where you're at. Here's how I could have said it better. And at the end of it, I said, you know, I, this must have been difficult for you. And I acknowledge that. And I want you to know I so much appreciate that you came directly to me mm-hmm. rather than going to 12 buddies and forming an angry mob and storming my office with pitchforks and torches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often Literally. that's what people do. I think we're more comfortable, you know, venting to a spouse is one thing, but, you know, kind of sure. 
going beyond that. Have you experienced any of that, that rumor mongering and that gossip that doesn't help disagreement? So what's interesting, what you reminded me of when you said that, I thank God have not experienced it much in my, in my career. But what I do remember is sort of in, when, as I was working to uh, get rabbinical ordination, there were times when, when, you know, people said things that really irked me. And I remember that it took, it took a lot of energy for me. I mean, I, I'm going to bash, let me just backstep one step before I tell you this. I would say that in college, I was probably the person who my goal in life was to strive to be everyone's friend. And in, in effect, I, I don't know if I did this consciously, I wouldn't take a stance on anything. So when I went through rabbinical, when I went through rabbinical school, I said, you know what, it's, it's time for me to sort of grow up. I've got to face people and I've got to talk to people one-on-one and tell them what's bothered me and what they said that I didn't like. And it could be, it was, you know, between teachers, friends, people I had met, whatever it was, I sat down with them and I, and I did that. And you'd be surprised at the reactions you get. Sometimes, I mean, I'll put it this way. I think it's rare that you get the reaction that you gave to your congregant. Now it might be different with a sort of, you know, pastor versus congregant scenario. But if you versus come and you tell people, right? Battle for the death. Right? But if you're, if you actually, um, if you actually come to someone and say, when you said X, I mean, obviously you're supposed to say it as you know positively as possible. But if you say you said X and I didn't like when you said X, however you say it, a lot of the time people, they just don't want to hear that. I mean, do you, have, you, have you tried that one-on-one on a sort of where there's no power dynamic, where there's just you and a colleague or a friend or something and just said to them, I really didn't like that, that you know, when you said that, did you get a positive response? What, what, what do you find? Sure. I mean, when you say appear, um, I mean, it's mostly, you know, friends. And I think there's a sense, um, there's a benefit of the doubt. Um, there's a benefit of the doubt currency involved in friendship where mm-hmm. uh, if you're not going to give me the benefit of the doubt that um, I'm never trying to hurt you and I'm not giving you the benefit of the doubt that you're never trying to hurt me, I don't know if we can get anywhere. You know, like you and I have that where, where we can banter and kind of jab at each other just fine. Um, but even if something felt like a deep cut, I would go, yeah, Jamie didn't intend that. So I may say, hey, that cut me deep. Here's why. It's just trying to help, trying to bring the friendship deeper so that you understand, you know, I have this wound or I have this soft spot. Um, I get what you're trying to do was funny and not hurtful, but this has nothing to do with you. And I think there's this self awareness that of where, of why are you offended or why are, is someone hurt by this? You know, and it's, it's again to yourself. So we often get offended and react rather than get offended and then explore. Why is that actually offensive? You know what I mean? Right. If someone didn't like what I said, why they didn't say they hated me. They didn't say, um, you know, it wasn't my wife saying we're getting a divorce or I'm leaving the church. It was, uh, they didn't like what I said, or they don't like how I'm doing something that is no, you know, that doesn't have anything involved in who I am or uh, what, you know, my family or anything that's truly valuable. So I think it's this, there's this exploration, um, of why is it, do I feel that way? And then, and then talking to somebody, you know, directly. And that's the harder part. I think even if we get to the first step of self-awareness, going back to the person and saying, Hey, I want to circle back on this. Or remember when you said this, it's always, I think if you're not practicing it, um, it, it's, it it feels awkward and uncomfortable because on the general day to day, people don't talk about their emotions or don't tell each other when they're hurt. They just, you know, unfriend each other on Facebook or stop talking or talk about someone behind their back. No. So what was interesting was I feel like what you're saying, and I agree with this 100%, is that a lot of the time when people sort of put up their tail feathers and they feel this, you know, um, this need to sort of push back and, and, and get defensive has a lot, it can have a lot to do with people's um, sort of sense of self-worth, right? If they feel yeah. like they don't, they, that you're attacking who they are and they don't, they aren't as confident. It sounds like as you are right. That they, and all of a sudden you say, you know, when you did X and X, it really hurt me. Um, they can't just take a step back and go, okay, why is this person telling me this? What did I do? You know, th- those sorts of things. And I, I can actually remember there was one person when I sort of had that 
that, that sort of string of times where I sat down with people to sort of confront them in that way. To, and it was mostly, by the way, the confrontation that I was going through w- wasn't necessarily to sort of correct anything in our relationship, which is kind of a weird thing to do, but it was really because I needed to just get it off my chest. Like that's how I felt. I felt like I had to get it off my chest and I had to learn how to say what was bothering me. There was a really constructive uh, a thing to do. I mean, maybe at their expense, but it was a constructive thing to do. But there was a person who I con- who I confronted and I told him something that was really, I mean, it was a strong, strong rebuke. And he was one of these people who I felt from the outside, I, you, he, you could never tell him he did wrong. And he literally turned around and went, you are 100% right. And I was wrong. And I was floored. And that response of like somebody sort of turning around and being able to say, you know, this isn't all about me is really, I mean, when you sit down and you want to have a conversation with somebody and you want to, um, have constructive, as we call it in Hebrew, machloket, which is debate. If you can say, this isn't about me, this is about you know what this person needs right now or about the thing we're actually talking about and distance yourself and your own emotions, it's, it's the only way to get ahead in, in conversations like this. Yeah, it reminds me of a post, uh, a response uh, my friend Jamie Lowe put out um, to a request on Facebook for um, any quotes or helpful ways people have found that they can disagree well. And he, Jamie mentioned uh, what's called street epistemology, um, Socratic inquiry method um, for helping others discover how they arrive at those conclusions. So, you know, we disagree on the surface level on those conclusions we made, but we don't often recognize where they came from or how we developed those conclusions. Um, Things as as big as politics and religion, for instance, are two of the biggest uh, arguments that uh, people can make. People often know the conclusion they made, you know, are you Republican or Democrat? uh, Or are you, you know, Baptist, Jewish, Lutheran, atheist? But oftentimes people don't even have a clue of how they got there. So what Jamie's recommending in the street epistemology is um, rather than convincing them that you're correct and they're wrong, you help facilitate helping them see uh, their thought process or how they came to that conclusion which sometimes leads people to change their minds or at least in real time, help them appreciate the opposing side. Right. Um, He says it, he ends with, it only works with people uh, who who are open to that process though. It's not useful for convincing your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving (laughs) that he's wrong. Nailed it. Nailed it. (laughs) I would love Um, to see, I would love to see that somewhere on SNL. I'd love to see drunk uncle appear. (laughs) Uh, drunk and, uncle has, you know, there was a great sketch on uh, on the news where they did that drunk uncle. That was. Um, that's what I'm sure. saying. So, yeah. so to see them actually talk him through his uh, thought process. Well, yeah, rather really than hard. just rather than just <laughs> setting him up for for cheap jokes. <laughs> it's probably really hard if your drunk uncle is drunk at that time to help them work through their thought process. But it, yeah, I hear what you're saying. By the way, just in sort of the the thought process and and the conversation to be had. One of the most amazing things I've I've heard said uh, by a comedian um, was when Dave Chappelle got the uh, Mark Twain Award. I don't know if you saw his acceptance speech. That was amazing. It, it was amazing. And his acceptance speech is probably one of the reasons I love him as a comedian most. And he said, what, and, and we're going to put it in the show notes, but what he said was, um, I... Uh, he said, there are many people who I watch. He said, first of all, every single opinion that you have, that people have out there is represented in comedians. There are enough comedians out there and enough people that every position is basically represented, which is amazing in and of itself. And then he said, and when I watch comedians work, I can see, oh yeah, that guy was telling a joke, but he's racist. I know he's racist. And then he said, but at the end, I'm going to sit down with him and I respect his craft. I respect how he made his jokes that I'm going to sit down and have a conversation with this person and we're going to talk. And he said, and this, he said, we're doing it right. All you people out there are doing it wrong. And I completely agree with him that the, the open uh, idea exchange is the, is the basis foundation. And the only thing that can make the going back to the country a little bit, but even just the one-on-one interpersonal relationships, if you can't openly exchange ideas, you're done. How are you going to converse? How are you going to go anywhere? How are you going to learn anything? But that's the craft of comedy in essence is, is, is uh, those of us who aren't trained or, or stage comedians aren't in the practice of trying to make it, um, make it a good, well-versed j- joke, right? 
versus like you're saying, you know, the rest of us aren't, don't know how to do that. And so anytime that we joke, it just hurts or it's a low blow or it's insensitive to somebody because we haven't or, crafted or it came, well. Or you came to the, to the club knowing you were going to hear a joke and it might be offensive, right? That's what he always says. Dave Chappelle always says like, you're paying for my Netflix special or you're watching this, right? Like yep. I didn't come to your house and tell yeah. you this joke. Yep. You came to my house and you know what you're going to get kind of a thing. Well, but and no, with the... I even mean the conversation afterwards is the is the is the key to this all, right? Oh, sure. Not the jokes on stage, but the, you'll sit down and have an exchange with somebody who you sit there and you say that guy is racist, and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to them to figure out, like you said, how they came to that idea or whatever it be. Here's That's the other much. trouble with it, though, is uh, in order to, to really have a healthy disagreement, you have to have a shared uh, respect for a, a baseline of facts and reality. No, that's clutch. M- meaning like um, if, if, if you, your reality is um, conspiracy theories and the yes. news you read is completely contradictory and, and, and fabricated, I don't know where you're finding that, but I'll take some guesses later. Um, <laughs> I cannot have a rational conversation with you because my reality is based somewhere in factual evidence and even uh, firsthand reported stories that, you know, reporters are, are fact checking and, and there's at least multiple sources confirming the same thing versus things that are spun out of control. If we don't first have that same sense of reality, it's really difficult uh, to disagree well. Um, you know, and I think the only also thing that you can do is disagree, right? If you don't even agree on the baseline facts of things, what do you got? You got nothing but a disagreement to start with, right? Yeah. You, you, you're going to go from there. The other thing I love is um, I have to find who quote whose quote this is, but um, I heard once that most people listen to respond. Most people listen to respond, but it's better to listen to understand. Mm. Right. And you hear this in the kind of dialogue around um, the Capitol storming and the uh, any political rhetoric is someone will say something uh, they didn't like about what President Trump did. Mm-hmm. And then a Trump supporter will say, what about Obama? They didn't respond to what was put out there. 100%. They just res- they just heard what was said and responded what they had in their head, right? They didn't say, well, tell me more about why that was wrong or tell me, you know, um, you know, how how he incited that riot or where do right, you see right. that you know what i mean they're not listening to understand and go deeper they're listening to respond and people have already concluded made up their mind what side they're on and they're staunchly right uh and they're just they're just listening to respond and to argue not trying to have a healthy dialogue no for sure i i think um i think what's I think in life, you could probably, everyone could probably benefit from not waiting for their turn to talk. That's for sure. Right. But yes, in in an actual dialogue, right. If it's actually going to be a dialogue, you have to say something and then have somebody say, okay, I heard what you said. Now let's sort of break that apart. I I completely agree with that. Um, um, Monks have this uh, practice where they'll often uh, chew their food for, uh, they'll count and chew it 30 times before they swallow and it's this deeper appreciation of what's going on. And I've always thought about that, especially in crucial, we call them crucial, crucial conversations in uh, the pastoral care world. In crucial conversations, I try and chew on what someone's saying if I disagree with it for as long as possible before I really um, have any response. And, and, you know, there's always, you got to try and ask more questions rather than get reactionary to, you know, if you said something awful that I disagree with, I can react and get angry or tell you you're an idiot or respond how wrong you are. Or I can try and understand where that came from and how, how you can possibly see that. And it only comes through actually, you know, trying to understand it, trying to explore um, an alternate possible, an alternate um, idea. 100%. So one of the things actually, um, I guess you could say it might be similar to that practice in the Jewish version of that, we have uh, what's called the Talmud, which is our first law book. And our first law book actually is the second law book. The Mishnah is the first and the Talmud is the second. The Talmud is the commentary on the Mishnah. Where is the Talmud in the real it? Bible? In in the real Bible? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what books 
<laughs> when you're talking like that, where's the where in the real Bible? Where'd they put that in the in the table of contents in the bibliography? So the so the uh, the Talmud um, has is is basically a compilation of 20 books of law that it has on every single given topic that they're talking about. It has multiple opinions from multiple rabbis, and it it was all codified into one book. Mm-hmm. Which the idea was you you weren't allowed to leave out dissenting opinion. There was no way to sort of streamline everything and say there, there's only one way to look at one issue or you know one legal uh, question. Right, everything has multiple different possibilities, and even though later on down the line we had law books which sort of streamlined it to say this is the thing that we do you know, where the tire meets the road, so to speak. This is what you need to do. You can't have 16 opinions on how yeah. to sh- tie your shoelaces. You have to decide how to tie your shoelaces, right? So where the, where the rubber hit the road, they've made a choice. But when I get asked a question as a rabbi, I can go back to the original source. I can go back to the Talmud and say, wait, there are multiple minority opinions, which could be just as viable. And if somebody's in a position where they need a different sort of spin or take or a different way out of a problem, I can say, oh, look, there's a minority opinion. But all those things had to be encapsulated in the one book. And that, by the way, the Talmud is probably the most studied book in the world, especially in the Jewish world. But actually beyond that, because believe it or not, I'm just going to put this out there as a cool fact. Um, Somewhere in Asia, I'm not sure where it is, this is sort of based on a very bad notion. So it's, it's kind of weird to, to quote it, that there are people out there that think that Jews are very successful. I don't know where they get it from, but they think that Jews are very successful. And somehow, Amy is case in point right here. Case in point. The, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the Asian uh, country decided that since Jews are successful and make a lot of money, this is horrible. I'm going to keep going, though. Yes. It must be what they study that got them there. So they started studying the Talmud because they wanted to have the secret of making money. And I'm like, okay, I'm not sure that's... And like, I actually had to present one time. This is really fun. A friend of mine is doing a lot of deal, uh, business work in China, and he brought people here to Israel. And he said, can you talk to them about the Talmud? Because they think this is the key to success. So I had to stand in front of these people and go, yeah, it doesn't work like that. In fact, it doesn't work like that at all. Like it is the most confusing uh, stream of consciousness book you will ever read. But the rigorous study, and I said to them, this was the key. I said, if you want to know what really is helpful from the Talmud, it's critical thinking, which it does a lot, and debate, and being able to debate with people. And I said, that is a key to success. I have a friend who um, wanted to be successful. And so he read um, a book on uh, where, where the author compiled 50 uh, incredibly successful people's morning habits. And then he, 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 he utilized several of those morning habits. However, this friend has no determination drive. <laughs> so you're saying like he did it for one day. So he would just <laughs> do well. <laughs> I mean, even like, if he did it for five, he would basically do that morning routine and then play video games. Oh no! <laughs> so That's he amazing. thought the secret was in the morning routine and not the work ethic. I eat oatmeal every day. Turns out I every haven't day. made any more money. I'm Wake up at five, time. exercise, meditate, oatmeal. I get going. Yeah, I'm killing it. Still broke. <laughs> Still broke. And he couldn't figure out why. Why was that? So anyway, back to what you were saying, I do really appreciate um, how how you and how the rabbis that I have worked with in the past and studied under um, are able to really explore um, all sides of the story and even make up. I mean, it's this interesting thing that some of the rabbis did that I worked with. They'd make up um, like a third or fourth possible opinion that was totally impossible but they would say have you ever considered this that was my (laughs) have you ever considered this and i'm like no that's ridiculous and they would say well why is it not possible and then you'd have to go well and we even i remember in my uh let's see what was it It might have been my prophets course um we'd have to write a paper and the first half 10 pages were um expositing or, or um doing some exegesis on what the text was about, the second 10 pages had to be arguing other interpretations of what that text could possibly be saying. And I thought, this is ridiculous, but unbelievably helpful because you realize that there's always this search and this way of being in dialogue that if like, if you had someone you disagreed with right in front of you, 
And there were a facilitator who said, okay, the two of you walk away and write a 10 page paper about the other person, why the other person could possibly be right. It'd be a much different conversation than yelling at each other and the heat that comes when you get face to face or, uh, you know, hide behind the computer online. <laughs> that's well, that's actually the, the, I think one of the key problems we face right now, the hiding behind the computer, mean, meaning like what, what people think they're in dialogue with people on Facebook, right? But if I can basically put out a statement and walk away, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did nothing except, you know, maybe trolled you or something. I'll tell you one of my, one of the, my, my favorite jokes by a comedian, uh, this guy was talking about how, um, that the internet, he said, the problem with the internet is you never get kicked off. Right. You're, you're always on, you're, you're allowed to be on the Internet no matter what you say, no matter what you do. He said, let's say back in the 80s, I hated Lionel Richie. And he said, and I wanted to tell Lionel Richie that I hated his music. Right. Unlike you can do now where you just type something on you know, his Instagram or whatever and say, your music. Stinks. He said, I'd have to spend some serious 80s quan. And, and buy like a front row seat, or at least in the front 10 rows, right? right? So that he would hear me yelling at him. And he said, and by the time I got there, and by the time Lionel came out and he sang a couple songs, I'd be like, oh, I like the Commodores. I forgot that I like the Commodores. And he's like, okay, I'll yell at him in a second. And he like keeps going. And he said, by the time you got to it, he'd be like, no, nah, I think I, really, I like Lionel Richie. And he's like, that's the problem in this world. We don't take time to even listen to the other person long enough to decide whether or not we agree with them or not. It's immediate you know, you said this, I'm going to tell you that I hate you or something. Well, and there's almost, there's a, there's a false anonymity to doing it online where you think there's no repercussions, right? Like if I tell you off right now, we're probably not going to hang out or be friends anymore. But if I won't believe this, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, (laughs) but people think they can do it online and somehow there's no backlash when in reality, there's even greater because you're essentially gathering everyone you've ever met in your life and saying something. And if it's uh, disrespectful or if it's inappropriate or if it's something you would be uh, discouraged by or something you wouldn't want your grandmother to see, you are now you are now more responsible for that post than you would have been if you had just said it to someone you disagreed with right out. Like you're better off calling someone and you know telling them sure. off than uh, posting it on Facebook. One of the things, go ahead. ahead. No, I had a teacher in New York who um, was, you know, he's a rabbi and a teacher at the school where I was studying to become a rabbi. And he was also a psychiatrist. And he said that there were people who he dealt with who came to him, you know, as a psychiatrist. And they would say, um, you know, it really pains me. You know, there are people who, who stand up at the front of the synagogue and lead the service. It could be the cantor if you're at some synagogues, or it could be actually a, a lay leader that was asked to lead that service. Mm-hmm. And this person said to him all the time, when people get up there to lead the, the prayer service, I'm in there, I'm like writhing and sort of like squirming in my seat going, I could do it better. And he said, what should I do about it? And the guy goes, you should stand up and yell it in the middle of synagogue. <laughs> and the, he goes, if you think to yourself, what would happen if I stood up and screamed that at the top of my lungs and everyone heard me? I'm better than this guy. Why didn't you pick me? And you go, oh, yeah, maybe I should sort of let go of that. You know, like that was actually, yeah, that's, that's exactly that advice. That's good. Um, I was talking to my co-lead pastor, Derek, about this. Um, and he said one of the things that happens in a culture of high anxiety, whether it's a conversation or whether it's a dialogue around um, current polit- political realm um, or strained you know, relationships or schooling, whatever it is, if anxiety is high, uh, rational thought is low. Like when, yep. when anxiety gets high, your brain actually reverts back to a premammalian brain, a, a lizard brain, if you will, that we had when we were cavemen, where the response was either fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And so if people read that post online or get that email or even hear from someone, they often get so reactive and anxious that their brain shuts down. Like if you think of, I like to think of my brain like... Um, like a, uh, a funnel almost. And the, the smallest part of the funnel is way in the back of your brain. And that's that lizard brain. That's where it's fight or flight. And over time, we've evolved um, a greater sensibility and consciousness, uh, awareness of, of what's going on. And even in the very frontal lobe, that prefrontal cortex, we have that social, uh, that, that, that social interaction and that, um, self-consciousness, essentially realizing that we exist and exist in a 
in a, a social realm, right? That's the part that shuts down. And so when we get anxious, one of the things that we need to do, if we don't want to be, you know, kind of that caveman who's either punching someone or running away, we need to practice getting back to that social conscious state and being rational about what's happening. Uh, one of the practices that uh, my therapist started me on was just simply breathing techniques. Um, and, and later on, I developed it into some portions of my meditation, exploring uh, my self-awareness, but also exploring um, conflict I'd been in or conflict I'm going to be in. And it helped make me more rational. Like, what's the worst possible thing that could come of Jamie disagreeing with me? You know, if you think about it in that social conscious way, the worst possible thing is we disagree. We don't see things the same way. Same thing on Facebook. Uh, someone posts something absolutely ridiculous about what happened at the Capitol building and some conspiracy theory. What's the worst possible thing that could happen if I don't post anything? What's the worst possible thing? What's what? How is my relationship going to be hurt if I look at that and go, boy, that seems dumb. And that's Moving the end on. of it. You know? <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. That's, that's that rational, um, well-matured, evolved brain reacting, that calm brain versus, I mean, I see people immediately responding and not even considering before they hit send what effect that's going to have or what they're saying or, yeah. you know, am I going to apply for a job next week? Then someone's going to see this. And mm -hmm. they let their anxiety decide how they're going to respond rather than those well-evolved uh, areas of the brain that are actually helping us thrive um, in this modern sense. I think that's that was a great insight that Derek had. Um, and it's important for all of us. I'll, I'll share just a quick breathing technique if anyone's in, curious about that, but um, follow up and, and ask us more if you want to know more about it. Um, but it's called square breathing, where if you picture a square in front of you, and on the left side, you, you move your focus from the bottom left corner up as you breathe in for four seconds when you reach the top corner. And then you move to the right in your focus as you hold that breath in. And then as you release the breath, you go down the other side of the square and you count to four at the same time. You get to the bottom right corner of the square and then you move your focus back over to where you started as you hold the breath in or hold the breath out without breath for four seconds. And then you just repeat that. And you're sort of following the square with your eyes as you breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, hold for four. Um, and it's one of those things you can do both as a practice, as an exercise to make you better later when you're possibly in conflict. And then also do in amidst conflict without the other person thinking you're a total weirdo. Um, you know, I'm, I'm often trying to refocus my energy toward my breathing. If I really want to have a healthy, crucial conversation that isn't driven by that anxiety, that anger, that fear, that fight or flight, it really helps, you know, get back into that rational mechanism, uh, and that self-awareness that really helps. It's impressive because I'll tell you two things I was thinking. Thank you. Of just one. Yes. That's one. the only reason I said it. It was too impressive. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I am blown away. But I'll tell you one thing, it, it, just to bring in our little bit of surfing for today, because we haven't talked about surfing yet. Gosh, um, I don't know if you, that? how do we miss it? We almost so failed. That, so number one is Nazis, rape, converting <laughs> Jews. And surfing. And surfing. Well, check, check, check. We did it. So the, um, I don't know if you saw, there was a huge sort of story in the surfing uh, world this weekend at, at Mavericks, which is one of the big spots in California and uh, near you actually, right? And up, upstate in Northern California, in between Santa Cruz and, and San Francisco. Place breaks somewhere between, when it's breaking, between 30, 60 feet. I mean, it's ginormous. It's huge. And a guy got an unbelievable wave. I mean, he could have gotten absolutely trounced. And I always think about those people who ride the, the biggest waves that there are, they really have to be someone who is so centered on their own sort of, um, like you were saying, fight or flight, but their, their adrenaline level has to be totally under in their own control, right? Because when they go under the water, when they get sort of pounded, when they're under there, they have to hold their breath for minutes at a time. Yeah. And to be able, and I actually saw a quote from a guy named Mark Matthews, who's a, a big wave surfer, in Australia who said, whenever you feel like you're at that point, if you're underwater, and he's like sort of advice for big wave surfers who want to be big wave surfers, he said, 
if you feel like you're at that reserve where you're about to run out of air, there's a lot more there mm. and don't, don't freak out. And I just was thinking about like the ability to control your breath. I mean, it's the same kind of a, an experience when you're sitting there faced with, you know, a life or death situation. Sometimes you can feel that way when you're with, especially somebody you love, right. Who you've respect and you, and you've had such a great connection with, and all of a sudden they're saying things that you can't believe that they would say, right. It can make you fall into that sort of high adrenaline level. And then you're not really having a conversation um, that, that is productive at all. On, on the flip side, I remember when I was, you know, sort of in my college years or just post-college years, I was much more of a flight person. I don't know if you ever had this experience, but I know that there are people who I am, who are in my social circle now that, who, who say things and might even live things out this way that they say, if I find out that somebody, I don't know, I'll give you an example, voted for Trump, they will not be part of my social circle anymore. And, and this whole idea of, you know, we won't, not only will we not have a dialogue, we're, you're not, I can't be friends with you if I disagree with you. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I felt like on my own, in my own world, when I was sort of living that out, it was much more of an experience of, of flight because I didn't feel like I could have that conversation with that person. Once I started sitting down and saying, no, I can have this conversation with this person. I can disagree with this person and it's still okay. I still respect them and I still love them that I could say, well, why would I ever say they're not going to be my friend? That's craziness. But people do that. That's, that's, I mean, do you, uh, let me ask you a question sort of to follow up in your congregation. Are you, are you trying to promote open dialogue in this way through the community? Are you trying to bring in as many voices as possible, or is it something that you just support when it happens? How does that work in your, in your ministry? Uh, yeah. I mean, on a, on a, I think I gave an example already of on a, on a interpersonal one-on-one or one-on-two uh, talking to people, I try and model that. Um, on a public level, yeah, we so we've done several things. Um, several years ago, there was um, some attacks and bombings that were uh, instigated by um, a sect of Muslims, and it was a radical sect. And um, we did a four-week response uh, we called Fear, and because we didn't want the dialogue just to be about. Uh, one specific religion about Muslims. And so we talked about fear on a greater level and we um, invited an imam to come visit and speak at our morning uh, brunch. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, he invited uh, anyone from a congregation up to a certain number of people uh, to come to the Salam Center, their, their Muslim center. Wow. And um, it was amazing. Full tour. We got to, to, to go into their worship center. We got to hear some of the uh, prayers over the loudspeaker that they would um, do throughout Moazin, the day. Right? What's Moazin. that? It's called a moazin. In, in, in this, in, in, I believe it's probably in Arabic, right? The, the, the tower that they, they send out that. Oh, yeah. That, yep. To, to help everybody to come pray, right? The moazin. Yeah. So that was a very, a very public uh, way of, you know, we can't just vilify an entire group of people we have to really understand. And, and we had already been in relationship with the director of the Salam Center. Um, I hadn't got to meet the imam before that day, but, uh, you know, the business manager, essentially, I knew quite well and knew that the Salam Center was one centered on peace and reconciliation. Um, you know, and so it wasn't, it, it was, it was very good and it helped people have this open dialogue. And we even staged some questions that were pretty, would be pretty offensive to someone who, you know, is of this sect of Muslim uh, or uh, Islam and opposed to the, you know, radical violent sects, just like there are radical violent sects of Christianity, uh, Judaism, any religion has these subgroups, you know, even in, you know, you see the the Proud Boys and the um, Antifa in, in political realms, right? They're, they're sects of violence that that not everyone agrees with. And you said it in the beginning, lumping them all together is, is, uh, is terrible and it doesn't open dialogue, but finding the people who you do agree with on some level and opening uh, conversations helpful. So yeah, that's another, that's an example of where we model right. it. We also bring up, uh, you know, several times I'll bring up in sermons, kind of other points of view, um, how other uh, d- Christian denominations might see this text and why it differs in confirmation. We have um, classes specifically where we teach our seventh and eighth grade students how to um uh, how to learn more about, you know, other religions, other types of people, 
um, how to have good conversation, where are we alike, where are we different, that kind of thing. So I, th- I hope that I model that in several different ways publicly, but also, you know, do my best privately. I, I fail all the time. I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not trying to come on here and say, and yeah, I'm, uh, I'm we're all only human, my friend. I'm you the know. Dalai Lama or something, but <laughs> I was, I had you confused there for a second. Well, this was great. Thanks for listening, everybody. Jamie, as always, good chatting with you. All right, people, good chatting with you and uh, like, subscribe, share, do all the things that I'm not even sure you can do. Talk to you. Yeah.